You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. Together, we aim to empower, educate, and encourage women to talk about our money. You can find more at fidelity.com slash it's time. Her Money is brought to you by PRX. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Her Money. I'm Jean Chatsky, and I'm very happy to be with all of you this week. You know, one of the things that I get asked time and time again, and it, it doesn't matter if it's 2005 or 2010 or 2016 or 2017, as the case may be, we know that our credit has never been more important. We also know that we are now in an environment where interest rates, they're going up. They're not going down anymore. We don't expect them to go up too far We don't expect them to go up too quickly, but they are headed in that upward direction. And that has an impact on your mortgages, your credit cards, your car loans, your student loans, your home equity loans and home equity lines of credit. And it's just a signal to all of us that we need to be paying more attention to our credit reports, our credit histories, and our credit scores. And so who better to talk about those things, as well as the world of personal finance in general with us, than Liz Weston. Liz has been covering personal finance for as long as I have, which is a very long time. She knows her stuff, and I was very happy to sit down with her at FinCon in San Diego. So everybody knows who you are. I mean, Liz Weston (laughs) has been writing about personal finance for decades. She's a a wonderful author and speaker and commentator, and her book, Your Credit Score, is a national bestseller. It's in its fifth edition. I know you're currently writing for NerdWallet. Tell us what's on your plate these days. What's been happening for you? I am so excited to work for NerdWallet. I started there in January, and they have like a three-week onboarding process. I know this because they um, poached... My um, my longtime team member, Arielle O'Shea, and so I watched as she went through the onboarding process, but I, I heard it was just fabulous. It's an amazing experience, and, you know, my husband came up to, to see how I was doing the first weekend, and he said, I haven't seen you look this happy in years. You are just glowing, and that's how I feel. I mean, it's a site that's just trying to help people with their decisions. It puts the consumers first. There's so much energy and excitement there. It's kind of like FinCon all it the is. time. I mean, I have to say, one of the things that I think we share is I feel like I have a really good day when I sit and I work the phones mm-hmm. and I I report. You know, I think at my heart and maybe at yours, we're reporters. And what drives us is digging for the newest information about making better money choices. Yeah. What can help people, what they really need to know right now. And as Clark said in his keynote yesterday, it's about building trust. You know, if you violate that trust, you've lost it. And you have to build trust over a long time. And people have to know that when they come to listen to you or to read you or to see you, 
that they're getting straight information, that it's not being biased, you know, by who's paying you or, you know, it's, and it's, a, it's a line to walk. It's kind of tough, but I think it's really important. People need to know that we're putting their interests first. Absolutely. So one of the things that I learned about you is that you got your CFP designation this year. <laughs> you, you decided that you would become a certified financial planner. Why did you do that? Well, this was quite a journey because I actually took the classes 20 years ago. Really? Yeah, and back then they didn't give the mark to journalists. You had to be a financial planner, and I thought that would be a conflict of interest. I didn't want to be writing about personal finance to attract clients. That just right. wasn't you know, in my zeitgeist as a journalist. So I blew it off, and then Mary Beth Franklin from Investment News paved the way. Um, she basically fought for us to be able to, be able to use our... Um, you know, our writing and the experience that we have with readers as experience for the CFP designation. So I wound up having to go back to school, went back to UCLA to do the review classes 20 years later, trying to cram all this into my head. I was convinced the night before the exam I was going to flunk it. I just thought, my first exam in my life, I'm ever going to flunk and it's going to be the CFP. So those of us who've hired CFPs um, don't really know the process that they go through. I mean, what do you have to do to become a certified financial planner? Well, there's a series of, um, you know, courses that you have to take. And the thing about CFPs is they're all about comprehensive financial planning. So it's not just one area. You are learning about investments and how to value stocks. And you are learning about estate planning and how to set up trusts and which trusts are appropriate and get it in situation. You're learning about taxes. You're learning about insurance. You're learning about credit. I mean, it's just like the, the whole... Um, comprehensive outline of what you need to know because the problem with most financial advice is it's so narrow. Yeah. You know, people are selling products, so they're selling the products that they know. A good financial planner can look at your whole situation and help you prioritize. This is what's most important. Then do this. Then do this. And unfortunately, a lot of uh, the really good financial planners are aimed at the very highest end of the market. So the people who really most need the advice aren't necessarily getting it, so they get it from us. Have you changed your view on how to go through the process of hiring a financial advisor now that you've become one? Yeah, I think it evolved um, over those years because when I first took the courses, I thought any re reasonably intelligent woman could handle her own finances. By the time I was done with the coursework, I had a tax pro, I had an insurance agent, I hired an estate planner. <laughs> I mean, it was, you know, this whole process. And finally, I wound up hiring my own financial planner. Um, you know, farther into the process. And I think what the issue is, is it's really, really hard to stay on top of everything. And it's also really hard to be objective about your own finances. Well, it's like being a doctor. I just um, finished work on a book that comes out in March. Oh. Yeah, it's called Age Proof, and I wrote it with um, Dr. Mike Roizen, who's the chief wellness director of the Cleveland Clinic. Yeah. And we have chapters on building your team and building your medical team, but also building your financial team. And I've gone through this myself. I would never... I've had a financial advisor for many years because I always felt like I needed somebody, even if I was doing most of the work myself, I needed somebody to look at it. Yes, And exactly. tell me that I was, you know, sick with the flu when what I really had was, you know, a cold or, or the other way around. Yeah, exactly. And I think a lot of people who are into the DIY stuff sometimes get too attached to that. And what it's really important to see a planner is in the years leading up to retirement because you are making decisions then that are irreversible. 
And if you screw this up, you're running out of money. Yeah. And it's really important to have that second look, but to find somebody who will put your interests first. And who you can talk to. Mm. Yes. I, I think one of the big frustrations of companies that hire financial advisors as an internal staff is that they can't get enough women. And and I think women make natural financial advisors oh, because yes. it's all about the conversation and about the relationship. Yeah, absolutely. As you went through it, did you meet women who were going along this journey? And do you think that... Um, you think more women will come along? I think so. I mean, I really hope that people take a look at this as a career path because it is going to be growing. Even with robo-advisors coming along, there's still the need for that one-to-one human contact. And I think women naturally gravitate to the fiduciary standard. Um, you know, we're so used to putting other people first <laughs> that it's a, that's sort of a natural with our careers. But I really hope that more women take a look at this as a career path because it can pay well. You can do well by doing good or doing good by doing well, however that works. And it's really challenging and fascinating. You're always learning. There's always something new. So I really do hope more women took a look at this. I want to talk about a couple of the things on your plate. First of all, your book, your credit score, it's in its fifth printing. It's, that's wonderful. <laughs> what has changed in the world of credit? People are still obsessed with what do I have to do to maintain good credit? So what's the secret sauce these days? You know, a lot of things have changed. When I was thinking about the first time, the first edition of that book, yeah. people didn't know what a credit score was. They didn't know what it went into, you know, what went into it, how they could protect it. It was very, very new. And now I think the CFA's last survey, like 80% of people basically knew what a credit score was and the basics behind it. So we've done a, a much better job of getting informed about that. I think people are still underestimating a little bit how much influence that score, those credit information has in your life. You know, it's it's not just loans now no. and credit cards, it's insurance, it's, uh, you know, what you pay for insurance, how much of a deposit you have to put down for utilities, your cell phones, health carriers are looking at all this. So even if you don't plan to go out and get a loan, you need to pay attention to that credit it's score. It's employment. Yes. And employees don't use credit scores, they use they the use credit the reports, reports, as you know. Um, and fortunately, that's a trend that actually seems to be on the decline, thank goodness, because there is no connection. There never has been a proven connection between your credit and your propensity to steal or anything else or be a good employee. But that was kind of a shorthand that employers were using to basically flush people out of their potential employer pool. Let me just take a sec to remind everyone that Her Money is brought to you by Fidelity Investments. Fidelity is focused on helping women like us take charge of our financial lives. We all deserve to live the lives that we have worked so hard for. So visit fidelity.com slash it's time where you'll find more conversations like this one with Liz Weston, information about how to manage your money during life's biggest events and most challenging times, whether you're getting married, divorced, or starting a new career. Again, that's fidelity.com slash it's time. And I'm happy to be back with Liz Weston in San Diego. So when you are talking to people about what they need to do to maintain a profile of yourself as a responsible person, because that's essentially what a credit score is used to measure these days, what do you tell them? Well, you have to have and use credit, but that does not mean carrying debt. A lot of people have those two conflated mm -hmm. in their minds, and they're not the same. 
You know, I haven't carried credit card balances. I have a great credit score. Although my husband has a better one, which really irritates me. You know, me too. I know. What is that? Oh my goodness! I am so relieved to hear you say that. <laughs> it really, really bothers me. Yes. Well, I tell him it's because he's older. Oh, yeah. it may be. Yeah. He has a longer history. Exactly. I, okay. There we go. Now, <laughs> now I feel, feel better. better. I can go on with my day. The other thing is making sure that you don't miss payments. You know, skipped payments can knock 100 points off a good score, and you don't want to be in that position or let anything go to collections. And that's really tough with medical billing these yes. days. I just had a fight with Cedar sinai over a bill that went, to, that went to collections, and I got to them to drag it back before it hit my credit report. And it was simply a case of, you know, insurance not paying, insurance being slow, somebody wrong got billed. You really have to bird dog those bills to make sure they don't wreck your credit. When you are um, looking at your credit report and, and those medical bills in particular, and if anybody hasn't watched the John Oliver segment on medical debt, you, you must, after you're done with this podcast, Google it. But I'm wondering, when do things fall off? When can you actually stop dealing with them? Well, the good news is most negative items fall off seven and a half years after they first go delinquent. So it's seven years and 180 days. So if you have something like a skipped payment or something that got charged off, you know, eventually it will fall off. And the effect of it declines over time. You know, it's recency that really matters. So that's the good news. There are some things that can stay on there. Unpaid tax liens can go on forever. If you get a judgment against you in court, now this is really terrible. It's it, the statute of limitations is actually is different because in most states the creditor can renew it after ten years and it can wind up back on your credit report. With those medical debts and the others that fall off after seven and a half years, if you get your financial act back together and you know that you have these unpaid debts, should you go back and pay them, or does that reset the clock? It doesn't reset the clock to pay them, but you have to be savvy about doing it. Okay, so. Because it doesn't necessarily help your credit to pay off these collections, and that's, that's the bad news. The best thing you can do is to call the medical provider where you originally incurred the debt. See if they'll take that back. That gets it off your report as a collection. Okay? And if you can work it out with the medical provider and pay that off, that's the best case scenario. If you do have to deal with a collection agency, then you want to settle it. You do not want to pay 100% because they didn't pay 100%. Of course not. They paid pennies on the dollar. Exactly. So you have to be a little bit savvy about this. One of the issues with statute of limitations, if if you admit it's your debt, in some states you can renew it. You know, so that's a problem. But that's a little bit different from credit reporting. State statutes are all about when you can be sued, and the credit reporting is about, you know, how long it stays on your credit report. Jerry Detweiler has a wonderful site. It's called Debt Collection Answers. It does a wonderful job of answering these questions and helping you work out a strategy. She's got a free ebook. It's a great place to go for that kind okay. of stuff. All right. That's terrific. And she is a, a high-quality reporter. Exactly. So that's, that's fantastic. What questions are you getting asked most in Ask Liz Weston these days? You know, the area I never wanted to cover was Social Security. I thought it was complicated and boring, and who cares anyway? The first time I answered a question about Social Security, I got inundated with questions. There's so many people out there that need help. And Social Security is mind-bogglingly complicated. So complicated. And then Medicare is even worse on top of it. So what I'm learning is that there's a huge audience out there for that information. And, you know, when I started writing about credit, I didn't want to write about credit either. But I started writing about credit scores, and people had all these questions. So that basically led my coverage for years because people wanted to know. And now I'm kind of segueing into a different area 
which is how to work the system that we all qualify for, that a lot of us are going to depend on for most of our income in retirement. Millennials don't believe it's going to be there. It's going to be there. It's going to be there. <laughs> it's going to be there. But right now, the pressing issue is for the people who are approaching retirement and how to do it right. One of my biggest concerns is people who think they know what they're doing, and they really don't. Well, we know two-thirds of people tap Social Security at age 62, and by doing that, they leave a huge amount of money on the table in most cases. Yeah. So is there a general stream of advice that you give people on this? General, but with caveat that everybody's situation is different. Yes. Here's an example. Almost always it's better to wait at least until the magic age, as Barry Beth Franklin puts it, of 66 or 67, whatever your full retirement age is. Try to wait at least that long, okay? If you have a spouse who didn't work, try to wait till 70 because she is going to be living on your benefit. It's really important to make that benefit as big as possible. Now, here's the caveat. If you had kids late in life, if you have minor children when you hit your 60s, it may be worth claiming earlier so that you can get that child benefit. I just got an email from a woman who didn't realize that was even a possibility. Her husband waited till 69 to apply and realized that they'd missed out on three years of child benefits, and that's thousands and thousands of dollars. Again, really complicated. Do you advocate that people use a service like Maximize My Social Security or Social Security Solutions. These are programs that are essentially computerized programs that can tell you what the best scenario is for you, but you do have to pay for them. Yeah, it's 40 bucks. And I, what I would say is if you have a fairly simple situation, if you're fairly close in age, um, you can go use the AARP one. They have a good one. I think T. Rowe Price is another one that has a free calculator. Yeah. If you have any questions, though, if you want to play with some of the assumptions, um, or if you have a situation where you have minor kids, or you are affected by a pension, you know, that might reduce your Social Security. Private pensions don't. Government pensions may. Yep. So that's a big deal. Um, there's a lot of situations that the free calculators can't deal with. So I would pay the 40 bucks, frankly, to just see what Maximize My Social Security has to say about your situation. And that's actually, it's probably the best calculator that I've seen. That's uh Fantastic. And I've, I've always said that that's what I plan on doing. When I get there, my husband and I have a fairly large age difference. And so it's one of the, one of the triggers that gets you to the point where you know you have to do that. He has a higher credit score, but, you know, there, there we go. Yes. Liz Weston, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with me today. It's, it's always, always a pleasure, Jean. It's so nice to see you. It is so nice. I mean, being at FinCon, I don't know how you feel, but I just feel like I'm back in high school and I'm walking through the, the campus and waving to my friends every time I turn around. It is. That's exactly what it's like. Yeah. Well, I hope to see you soon. You too. And Kelly has joined me in the studio. Hey, Kelly, we're counting down. Hi, Jean. Yes, I am in the spirit. All right. What do we have? Our first question is from at True Trixie on Twitter. It's a fun handle. Is there a way people can negotiate with the IRS when you can't pay the taxes you owe at one time? Yes, there is a way to negotiate, but there's also just a way to go on a payment plan, which for most people is probably a lot easier. The IRS has a very regimented process for going on a payment plan. And if you go to the IRS website at irs.gov and just Google payment plan, you will see all of the different um, requirements of getting on payment plans. They approve these things all the time. And it is so much better to 
go on a payment plan than it is to be late and start to incur interest charges and penalties, that I would say look into that as your first line of defense. And if the debt is too large, then you get on the phone with somebody from the IRS, perhaps with an attorney as well, and talk about whether you can reach some sort of an offer in compromise. And we should, in addition to our cooking show, do a show on taxes. Yes. Well, tax time is coming up. It's coming up. It's soon. Um, And we can even do a mailbag show. We could do that. Mm -hmm. We could do that. Maybe we'll get an accountant or something on with us to do those questions because I'm, you know, conscious of the fact that I am not an accountant, nor do I play one on TV. (laughs) That'd be great. Yeah. So that'd be good. Okay. And our next question is from Carla on Facebook. She goes, hi, you once gave me advice about shortening my commute and moving closer to work. I've done that. I live a mile from work and I moved to Philly. Now I have a new problem and need some more advice. How do you save money? And I mean, how in all caps, I was always shown how to spend, but I'm ashamed to say at 48 years old widow, I really don't know the very basics. What do I do? How do I start? Please help. And thank you so very much. Oh, that's a good question. And I think we're not taught how to save many of us. And the easiest way to save is just to do it first. And this is the way that I do it in my own life. When I get paid, I take savings off the top and I put them away into my retirement plan, into my emergency cushion, into whatever different pots of money I have for various goals. And then whatever's left after I've saved is mine to budget for the rest of my expenses. And if you do it off the top and preferably you put the money into an account where you're not going to see it and there are some barriers to getting at it, like in a 401k where you're charged a penalty if you want to grab some of that money before you hit retirement age, you are very likely to keep your hands off. I also, um, you know, our producer at the Today Show, Malia, I had a, a really interesting conversation with her just about this topic last week. And she was saying when she first moved to New York, Her father said, you must save 10% and you must do it first. And that was just his hard and fast rule. And we all know as a young journalist, when you first move to New York City, A, it's really expensive to live in New York City and B, you're not paid a hell of a lot. Mm -mm. But she did the 10% first. She took it off the top and then she backed into her budget. And the first couple of paychecks were really hard. But after that, you just get used to it. And that's the truth. You just get used to it. So take the money off the top, whatever's left. That's discretionary, but you've got to do things like pay your rent and your mortgage and all that kind of stuff. And maybe when I move to Philly someday, we'll be neighbors. Well, thank you, Carla, for your question. It's a great one to end on heading into the new year. You can tweet us your questions. We're on Facebook. We're on jeanchatsky.com, Instagram, LinkedIn. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. We are just days away from the start of a new year. So I got to ask, what are your resolutions for 2017? Or are you anti-resolutions? How about you, Kelly? Are you making resolutions? I am making resolutions, but they're, of course, I have some financial ones. But the big one off the top of my head, which is also financial, too, is just to channel gratitude more often. Love that. Mm -hmm. I I think it'll help. I don't have a resolution quite formulated yet, but that conversation with Shonda Nyquist a few weeks ago got me really thinking about just trying to be a little more present in my life this year. 
Even if you are not making resolutions or you're anti-resolution, we can use the word goals. But before you write off doing this for 2017, I want you to know that financial resolutions might actually work. Those people who made financial resolutions at the start of last year were more optimistic. More debt-free and more financially secure than those people who didn't, according to Fidelity's eighth annual financial resolution study. Yet, despite this, only 36% of you plan to make financial resolutions this year. It's also worth noting that 70% of people predict they will be better off financially in 2017. 17. That's optimism. It's also worth noting that 70% of people predict they will be better off financially in 2017. Ken Hebert, who is Fidelity's senior vice president of retirement, says that as people become more optimistic about their financial futures, we are seeing. Fewer people setting financial resolutions. His concern about that, though, and he makes a really good point, is that even if you don't know what the future holds, you still need to be engaged and prepared. Optimism is great, but there is such a thing as being too optimistic when it comes to your finances. The top three financial resolutions for this year, according to this research, are to save more, pay down debt. And spend less. So here are some of my favorite tips for accomplishing all three. Number one, be specific. This is important. Instead of just saying that you want to save more and spend less, you got to say, "I want to save six thousand dollars by the end of the year." Then. Break it down so you know how much you're saving per month and per week, and write it down and put it somewhere that you'll see it all the time. Two. Reward yourself from time to time. Don't self-sabotage your savings progress by giving yourself too many spending rewards. But maybe for every five hundred dollars or thousand dollars you save on your way to that six thousand dollar goal, you treat yourself to drinks with the girls. Number three. Blab to your friends. Make yourself more accountable by sharing your goals with your family and your friends. It's also helpful if you have a support system that's in the know so that they can cheer you on. And four, have confidence in yourself. I don't mean to sound cheesy, but if you think you might fail, you're asking for failure. Build up your confidence by remembering other goals that you set and you achieved. Or other accomplishments, even that took you by surprise. Okay, to recap, if you're trying to save more, pay down debt, spend less, or accomplish any other financial resolution this year, you want to get specific. You want to reward yourself from time to time. You want to share the fact that you're doing this with important people in your life, and you want to have confidence in yourself, even if you're not quite feeling it at the outset. Thanks so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks. As always, to Kelly as well. We will be back next week with a wonderful guest. We call her the Energizer Bunny around here. Tiffany Aliche is the Budget Nista. She's going to help us get off to a great start for the new year. A big thank you as well to Liz Weston, to our sponsors at Fidelity. We're thrilled that you have been along for the ride with us in 2016 and are looking forward to a great 2017. Our music is provided by Track Tribe. Our show comes to you through PRX. Happy New Year! We'll talk soon.